Good morning. My name is Joel Tompkins, and this is my wife, Florin. We have been attending TCC for about nine months. Our scripture this morning comes from John chapter 17, verses 1 to 5. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Joel and Lauren. It's been so great to get to know you guys over these last nine months. You know, when Pastor Adam <clears throat> said that we have a, a baptism class um, during brunch and you can cut to the front of the line, immediately thought going, this could be the biggest baptism class we've ever had. Um, people just will go get their food quickly and just, you know, excuse me, I'm just butting in here because uh, I'm going to the baptism class. Not sure about you. So little hint for you if, uh, if you want to do that. Um, not sure that it's appropriate to lie about things like that. Um, so you better go to the baptismal class and pretend that you've never been baptized, if that's true. Um, you know, we spend a lot of times at announcements sometimes looking ahead, and sometimes we don't take some time to look, look back. And yesterday, we had a chance to gather as uh, men of TCC for our monthly men's breakfast. Um, those of you who were there will, uh, will know um, just how uh, encouraging that time is together. Those of you who weren't there, you've got one more opportunity on April 22nd to attend uh, before we kind of move into some summer programming that will include events other than... Uh, a monthly breakfast. But at these breakfasts, we, we talk about three things, basically. We talk about food, of course. Why would we have a breakfast without food? We talk about faith, where there's some teaching and friendship. And so the teaching theme that Pastor Adam has done, and he's had Scott Howley also take uh, one of these breakfasts, is, has been on men of prayer. And making that distinction that we're not just men with prayer, but that we want to be men of prayer. And so they have been walking us through the the Lord's Prayer. If you're familiar with Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 6 and the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we find what is known now as the Lord's Prayer. Luke chapter 11 also has a version of it. And in Luke chapter 11, it's interesting because one of the disciples, they noticed that Jesus would regularly go off and pray. And this was another one of those occasions. They saw him go off and pray and once again thought to themselves going, I think I need to learn something about prayer. That man can teach me something about prayer. And so they said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And so Jesus, of course, answers that and says, when you pray, say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, etc., etc." We now know that as the Lord's Prayer. It's probably more appropriately actually called the Disciples' Prayer. That it was a, a framework, a pattern of prayer that Jesus laid out that his disciples would pray. And I say that because today in chapter 17 of John, we actually come to what we might call the real Lord's Prayer. 
In the last two months, we've been engaged in a series based on the last words of Jesus found in John chapter 13 and following. And like a fly on the wall, we've been listening in as Jesus shares his final words before his arrest and his crucifixion and death. And of the four Gospels, only John spends as much time in the upper room. Uh, Again, spending the time there uh, teaching his disciples. And so now as we turn to chapter 17, we're quickly heading into the final hours now of Jesus's life. And we've made our way through these chapters in John's gospel. We've been paying careful attention to the teaching of Jesus. These final words are important words. They teach us how to live the life, a life that is counter-cultural. And as followers of Jesus, we want to know this life of Jesus. We want to know his teaching and then live as he lived and do as he says. If there's two words that are important in the Christian life, it's commitment and obedience. And we'll come back to those a little bit later. But we echo the words of the Apostle Paul when he wrote in Galatians 2 verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. In other words, we, we die to ourself. We die, die to our own selfishness that is so inherent and part of our nature. But we die to that. We're in essence crucified with Christ, Paul says. And I no longer live, but, and it's an important but, Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, he says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. We're going to see just how true that is. And it was wonderful this morning just to sing so many songs that all had in some ways a reflection of this life in Christ. Made possible because Christ died for us. And so let's look a little bit at what we're calling the real Lord's Prayer this morning. And that's not new to me. Probably about five of the, I don't know, ten authors that I kind of read and studied this week all made reference to the real Lord's Prayer. So I can't take credit for it, and neither can any of them because it seems so generic, but it's true. It's the real Lord's Prayer. And so when we come to John 17, it's really a transition. Because up until this point, Jesus had been talking to and with his disciples, And now Jesus talks to the Father in the presence of his disciples. And we, his readers, the readers of this today, are invited to listen in on this conversation. And so this prayer of Jesus is, in fact, the longest recorded prayer of his. It's sometimes referred to as the high priestly prayer. And the question that I'm just simply asking this morning is, what does this prayer teach us about living the life? As we study this prayer, what will we learn? And so the opening verse shows us this transition where he just uh, says, after Jesus said this, the this now refers to the teaching and instruction that he had shared in chapters 13 through 16. And so after he said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. Now that little phrase is very descriptive, isn't it? Looking up to heaven was a, form, was a very common posture of prayer. There are other biblical references to praying in terms of lifting our eyes to heaven. So the psalmist writes, I lift up my eyes to you and many other places. 
Now, probably Jesus, because it was a common Jewish practice as well, also probably raised his hands in prayer. And so not only did the disciples see Jesus praying, they heard him as well. Because to pray out loud was also a Jewish tradition. And I'm thankful that John was there listening to it and then recorded it for us. And that's what we're looking at today and in fact next week. So first, Jesus prays for himself. That's what we're going to look at today. So I'm basically doing the introduction for Pastor Adam's next message when he looks at the other couple of sections where Jesus prays for his immediate disciples. But then in the third section, Jesus prays for those who would believe. In other words, if you have come to believe in Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus is praying here for you. It should be incredibly encouraging to us today. We'll look at that in detail, as I said, next week. But if you have your Bibles open, I want you to notice verse 1 of chapter 18. Because there we read, when he had finished praying... So you can see these two bookends, right? Chapters 1 of verse 7 says, as he, uh, after he had said everything that he had previously said, he looked up to heaven and prayed. <clears throat> and then in chapter 18, it starts, when he had finished praying. And so everything between verses 1 of chapter 17 and verses 1 of chapter 18 is Jesus praying. But in chapter 18 in verse 1, it goes on, says, Jesus left with his disciples, and so they now leave the upper room, and they cross the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Okay? So that is the Garden of Gethsemane, where then Jesus ultimately goes, and it's now happening, right? It's time. Things will start to move very quickly now. And there in the garden, we know that Judas shows up with an entourage and Jesus is arrested and ultimately crucified. It's the events of Good Friday that we will remember in less than two weeks. So back to chapter 17 now, as Jesus begins to pray, he acknowledges there that it's time. Right? The, the hour has come, he says. This is it. And throughout John's gospel, Jesus has used this phrase, the hour, to signal the time of his death. And several times he had to say, his time has not yet come. But now, he says, the hour has come. It's time. The hour is here now for the fulfillment of his purpose. Now, the fact that Jesus prays shouldn't surprise us, right? Because if we've read the Gospels, uh, we, like the disciples, know that there are many references to Jesus going off and praying by himself. But not until these verses in John do we actually get to hear Jesus pray. And sure, he taught his disciples how they should pray, and they saw that prayer was so vital to him that they asked him to pray or to teach them how to pray. And so here we discover how Jesus prayed, and it's, it's an amazing prayer, um, and I'm only looking at the first five verses, and then as I said, Pastor Adam will, will conclude it next week. But I want us just to notice four very simple things about this prayer. I, I say simple, uh, there might be some little heavier theological stuff to wade through a bit, but <clears throat> I just tried to frame this in a way that could unpack this enough that maybe I hope makes it a little bit simpler or easier to follow. My first question is simply this, who does Jesus pray to? And that, of course, there's an obvious answer, the Father, right? Nothing like being Captain Obvious this morning. 
But there's an interesting thing that is happening here. If you just stop and think about this, this conversation that we get to eavesdrop on is within the Trinity that's taking place here. The, the second person of the Trinity is in fact talking to the first person of the Trinity. The Son is praying to the Father, or God is praying to God. And six times in John chapter 17, he calls out Father. And in verse 11, he actually adds the adjective Holy Father. And then in verse 25, Righteous Father. And so here, right at the opening of this prayer, we catch a glimpse of the intimacy between father and son. Jesus isn't being casual as he approaches the father. He isn't being flippant. He's being very personal. Because he knows even to Jesus, God is a personal God. And Jesus here prays with confidence because he can pray with the conviction that God, he knows, God the father will hear and answer. And so he is a God who is not in any way defined by our standards. He's not a God made in our image, but a God who is in fact holy, a God who is righteous, a God who he describes in verse 3 as the only true God. The others, Jesus says, are, are fakes. They're frauds. I mean, just stop and try to take this in a little bit. Think about this. There's a holy and righteous God that desires to have a relationship with us. And just like Jesus, we can come to the Father who loves us anytime, anywhere, with anything. We just simply acknowledge his presence and we say, Father, Father. So who does Jesus pray for? Well, at least in the first five verses that we're looking at, he simply prays for himself. He says, glorify me. Again, this may seem like an obvious conclusion, but if it's okay for Jesus to pray for himself, it's okay to pray for ourselves. Uh, Now, that may sound strange, but I don't know about you. I, I find that I pray for others far more than I pray for myself. Right? We're, we're taught, you know, to carry one another's burdens, to pray for one another. And so a lot of times our emphasis is praying for other people, which is right and appropriate. But our own spiritual health and our own renewal and our own vitality in our relationship with Jesus should be a primary prayer concern for us as well. And during Lent, we've been trying to pay particular attention to the fact that this is really a season of spiritual renewal in the in the church calendar, a very intentional time of coming before God saying, search me, God. Examine my heart. Know my heart. And ultimately, we know that then our heart doesn't always align with God's heart. So we say, change my heart. Or we realize that maybe our heart is a little flat, a little dry, and we say, revive me, revive my heart. It's okay to pray for ourselves that God would do a work of transformation, spiritual transformation in our own lives, as that's who Jesus prayed for himself in these verses. And what does Jesus pray for thirdly? He says, glorify me. 
Glorify your son. So he essentially prays that his obedience in going to the cross will truly bring glory to God. He doesn't have a long list of requests here, just this one simple request. But he actually makes the same request twice. If you look at verse 1, he says, Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Glorify your son. In verse 5, glorify me in your presence. And then he adds, with the glory I had with you before the world began. Try to wrap your mind around that thought for a second. Jesus praying, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began. What's he saying? Well, imagine God before creation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Loving and being loved. Experiencing glory together. And I sense this deep joy and anticipation in Jesus' heart as he anticipates returning to this pre-incarnate state. Now, I know that's a mouthful, so let me explain that a little bit more. Jesus The Son, we know, was present with the Father and the Holy Spirit before the creation of the world. Jesus was involved in creating everything. And John, in his opening chapter, makes this very clear in verses 1 through 3, where we read this. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And when John uses the Word here, he's referring to Jesus. And so every time you read this and you see the word Word, you can change it to Jesus. So in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him... That is Jesus, all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. Okay? So Jesus pre-existed creation. And then a few verses later in verse 14, John adds, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's a phrase we use a lot at Christmas, that verse. The word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. Or as Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrase says, he became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. This personal God coming to live amongst sinful people. And John goes on to say in verse 14 there, we have seen his glory. See the reference to glory again? And the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so John here in verse 14 of of the first chapter is describing what theologians call the incarnation. This is, in fact, the Christmas story. God the Son, who already existed taking on flesh and blood and entering into our world. And the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Philippians, he uses some very descriptive language to help us understand this even more. Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11, this is what he says about Jesus. Jesus, who being in very nature God. Okay? So he was 
in nature God. He was God. We just read that from John. But he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Okay? So the son didn't grasp on to being God. He submitted to the father. And by his submission, it says, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. God becoming man. And being found, Paul goes on, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This right here is the Good Friday event. This is what Jesus is talking about when he talks about his glorification. That ultimately the cross, his death, would bring glory to Jesus. And we go, what? Like, how does that happen? How is that even possible? Jesus is going to get beaten and stripped naked and nailed to a cross and left to die. There's nothing glorious about that. Sounds like total defeat, utter failure, humiliation. But far from being a devastating loss, the whole event, in fact, is victory over death. Jesus is, in fact, glorified. God is glorified in his Son. And the word translated here, glorify, in Jesus' prayer means to venerate, to to bring homage or praise. As one author put it, for Jesus, the cross is not a place of shame, but a place of honor. You see, we don't usually put death and glory together. Suffering, then glory, is the pattern of Jesus' life. Or as Eugene Peterson put it so eloquently, death and glory do not seem to be natural bedfellows. But in Jesus they are, he says. Jesus is in fact glorified in his death. And that's what Paul goes on in Philippians 2 verses 9 through 11. And he says, therefore, because he became obedient to death, God exalted him to the highest place. Right? He glorified him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. What is that a reference to? It's that every person at some point will bow their knee and give praise to God to glorify him in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. I hope you're tracking with me because all of this to me is absolutely amazing. To think that God would come and take on human flesh in essence, empty himself of the glory that he had at the beginning. And then pray, in essence, for a reversal of this emptying that took place. And he can pray that because he's done everything the Father sent him to do. And here in verse 4, he then says, 
I've brought you glory. I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. By finishing the work you gave me to do. Just a few chapters later, we know that on the cross, he declared, it is finished. He finished the work. That's why the Father sent him. To pay a penalty that he did not owe. To take upon himself the sins of humanity. To take upon his shoulders our sin. That's why we sang this morning. You were forsaken for our sake. And so lastly, when we look at these opening verses, why did Jesus pray? What was his motivation in praying? Well, simply put then, to glorify God. That his prayer, his death, was for the glory of God. So Jesus, in dying, ultimately made eternal life possible by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. He brought glory to God. He was sent by the Father to die for the sins of humanity. Jesus' mission and his prayer was motivated by his desire to bring glory to God. Now, have you noticed how listening to someone else pray allows you to catch a glimpse of their heart? It's one of the beautiful things that when you're in community and you pray together and you, you hear another person's heart expressed through their prayers. And so really in these verses here, we see the heart of Jesus, God's son, as he prays to his father. And in the verses that we're considering this morning, he's been praying for himself. Next week we'll see how he prays um, and what he prays for his disciples and really for all believers. But in each case, his motivation, his desire is to glorify God. I wonder when we pray, is that our motivation? Is that our desire that when we pray? That when we, when we pray for the healing of someone, do we pray for their good, but ultimately for God's glory? I hope so. That when we ask God to, to move and act and deal with a situation that we don't know what to do with, and he does, and we ultimately go, well, glory to God. That is ultimately why we should pray as well, to bring glory to God. Now, there's much that we can learn from this, and maybe there have been a few things that have already settled on your hearts this morning, but I want to just draw a couple of lessons this morning as we conclude this. Some lessons to learn from the real Lord's Prayer. I'm just going to give you three lessons, some takeaways, maybe some practical application within this. But I want to frame it within the context, in fact, of TCC's mission. And and as I was studying this, I was taking some notes, and I saw these recurring words, and I went, well, that seems pretty obvious. I think I can use that as my outline for this this part of the message. And our our mission at, at TCC, our mission at TCC, I should say, is quite simply to know Jesus, to walk with Jesus, and to share Jesus. And all three are important. And I believe 
as we've been talking this morning, that it's also time for us to, first of all, know Jesus, to know Jesus. Verse 3, Jesus is praying, and he says, now this is eternal life. Okay, we want to know about eternal life. Let's pay attention. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, to know you, God, the Father, and know you, Jesus, the one you've sent. Now, this isn't the first time we've come across this. In John chapter 14, Jesus had told them he's going to be leaving them. They're like, what? They're totally overwhelmed. They're, they're, they're uh, freaking out a little bit. And, and Jesus recognizes this emotional response. And he says, listen, don't let your hearts be troubled. And what was his answer to a troubled heart, to an anxious heart, to an overwhelmed heart? He said, believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, eternal life comes through knowing Jesus. Now, when I use that phrase knowing, I'm not just thinking about it in an intellectual way. I mean, of course, we need to know who Jesus is and what he did for us so that we can, in fact, put our faith or our belief in that truth. But the Hebrew idea of knowing goes further than that, and it includes experience and intimacy. And so for a follower of Jesus, this means, in fact, a love for Jesus, a love for God, and this love that is then best expressed in our obedience to him. And so knowing Jesus means that we make a commitment to following him. To, to discovering more about him, to, to getting to know him more deeply, more intimately. We get to know how he thinks, and so we, act, we think that way. We get to know how he acts, and so we act that way. And Jesus, the word says that, you know, we are all being transformed into the image of, our son, of, of, of the son Jesus. And so our salvation really is based on our understanding that, as Jesus himself said later on in John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So I pause to simply ask you this morning, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Because to those who've put their faith in him, he's given them the right to be called children of God. And so our status change, our identity changes. And so when we're singing a song like we did this morning, and there was that line, I am a child of God. Yes, I am. Could you, with all sincerity and truthfulness, declare that as your declaration this morning? And by the way, I have to say, um, I love hearing voices sing. And when we were singing some of those songs this morning, I just sensed the, 
the power and the unity that comes from our corporate expression of these truths. But were you able to truthfully declare, I am a child of God? Yes, I am! Explanation mark. If you can, rejoice. Be glad. That is, that is awesome. That's the best news. But if you were hesitant in saying that, if as you sung it, you were in your mind going, I'm not even sure what that really means. Uh, I'm not sure that I can say I'm a child of God. I'm made in the image of God. All humanity is. But am I a child of God? And so what do you do? If you find yourself and you say, you know what? I don't know if I can say that I know Jesus. Friends, our heart for you at TCC is that you would know Jesus. That you would put your faith and your trust and your confidence in him. And it's very simply the same answer that Peter gave to the people who were cut to the heart with the message when he preached one day. And they said, what do we got to do? We want to know Jesus. And he said, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Uh, the, The Greek word for repentance means to change your mind. And so if you're viewing the world through your lens, if you were living for yourself, if you were thinking that you had it all figured out. And you come to a place where you go, no, no, I don't. But I sense that this Jesus knows. And I want to repent and align my worldview with his. I want to live the way he lived. I want to pursue that relationship with him. I want to know Jesus. Friends, if that's the desire of your heart today, we would love to introduce him to you. To say you can know Jesus today. And so after the service, we invite you every Sunday to come and just say, you know what, I've heard these messages for a while and they were sort of making sense, but not totally, and, and I get it today. The Spirit of God is drawing me, and I know I need to start by knowing Jesus. Secondly, we walk with Jesus then. So we know Jesus, we come into this relationship, this, intimate, this relationship of experience and intimacy and knowledge where we're growing and understanding more of who Jesus is and how we should live, and then we walk it out with him. We, we have this relationship with Jesus. And in any relationship, we do exactly what Jesus is doing here. We have com- conversation with our Father, where we've now understood, I am a child of God. I can come to the Father boldly and confidently in the same way that Jesus did and pray like him. And so we walk in obedience. Some of you may know an old hymn. and Somehow these lyrics always come to me when I think about this walking with Jesus. And it's a a hymn called In the Garden. And some of you probably know this. And he walks with me. And he talks with me. And what does he do? What does he say? And he tells me 
I am his own. Friends, I don't know if there's more powerful words. A heavenly father who walks and talks with us and then says, you're mine. You're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. And the joy we share (laughs) as we tarry there, none other has ever known. And so how do we walk with Jesus? I take you back to a series of messages we did in January on a rule of life. Because we believe that walking with Jesus requires us, in fact, to be intentional. Where we have a a rhythm of, of practices, of spiritual practices that we engage in. You know, yesterday again at the men's breakfast, after Adam had taught on the Lord's Prayer, a a portion of it, we were talking and and I commented that so often in my own life, I'm a little daft. Um, uh, I think that's the right word, a little slow um, to get it. And that is that um, I will more often just try to figure things out in my own head and I'll ruminate things and I'll start to worry and I'll get stressed and I'll think about how do I solve this problem or what are we going to do about this? And then it dawns on me, you know, really, I, I should pray, you know. Um, your, build, your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And, um, and so we were talking about these, these matters, and, and we talked about how important it is actually to start our day and to finish our day in prayer. And then, of course, to practice the presence of God throughout the day, but to take those intentional times where when we wake up in the morning, so often our first thought goes to what? What are the challenges that I'm going to face today? What are the uncertainties? What am I feeling today? And if we reorient ourselves right away in the morning and say, okay, God, I need your help with this. And then when we come to the end of the day, we kind of do the same thing. And it's amazing how much better we sleep when we've turned over our, our worries and our anxieties to him before we put our head on the pillow. A, 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 a practice that has been around for hundreds of years, just called the prayer of examine. It's a prayer that you could pray at night. And if you're taking notes, maybe you want to quickly write down these, these words, but it's recall, rejoice, repent, and renew. And the prayer of examine is basically reviewing the day to retune ourselves to God. And so when we recall first, we, we think through the key events and emotions of the day that has passed, and we ask God to reveal his presence and activity in our day. We then go to a time of rejoicing where we gratefully and with thanksgiving recall moments of joy in our day. We thank God for his presence, for any blessings that come to mind. We repent because as we recall and rejoice, we will undoubtedly see words, thoughts, desires, actions, or attitudes in our lives that don't look like Jesus. And so we confess those and we receive his grace and we ask for his spirit to empower us. And then lastly, we renew with hope we consider tomorrow. And we ask God for wisdom and strength and boldness to walk in the way of Jesus. So we know Jesus, we walk with Jesus, and lastly, we share Jesus. You see, in verse 4, Jesus prays, I have brought you glory on earth 
by finishing the work you gave me to do. Now, I've already talked about that a little bit, right? Because Jesus glorified the Father by completing his mission. His task is finished. Now, of course, his, his mission was to save humanity, and he did that by dying on the cross. So his life and his death have glorified God. <clears throat> but what is a little strange is that Jesus actually prayed this before he had died on the cross. How could he say that his work is finished? I mean, the cross was still to come. Now, clearly, he was anticipating his own death to the degree that he could pray about it as if it had already been accomplished. But he may also have had just the entirety of his life in mind. His mission, his teaching, his making of disciples, his healing, work that he had done in his life that brought God glory. And Jesus has brought glory to God in his life and will continue to do so in his death. And so when I use the word sharing Jesus, I want us just to think about that in terms of living a life of service to others. That you and I have a mission. We have been given a task. The Bible uses different words for this, but in in, in some of Paul's writings, he talks about being ambassadors for Christ. What is an ambassador when you think of, you know, an ambassador to another country? They are representing this country in that other country. And so we are ambassadors for Christ. We go and we represent Christ wherever we find ourselves. We're ambassadors. We're, in fact, missionaries sent to share and proclaim the gospel message. And like missionaries, we study the culture a culture that is usually very different than the way of Jesus. And we find ways to speak truth into that. And I love the line that we, we, we uh, sang this morning. I knew I wouldn't remember it, so I quickly jotted it down. But it was to tell people of the treasure you found. Right? So if you've come to know Jesus and have experienced that joy, this treasure of this relationship, and you're walking with him, Our desire should be to share that treasure with others. And it was good for us and appropriate. And it just kind of, excuse me, kind of worked out that way. That we would have our Lenten focus this morning about repentance around missed opportunities of evangelism and mission. But what did we pray We prayed that we should proclaim the good news of life with Jesus, that we should be his hands and feet, that we should make disciples, that we should be on mission with our words and deeds, that we should be light in this dark world. Friends, this is the work that God has called each of us to. And you can look at it a bunch of different ways. He gave us the great commandment, love God and love others. I love Micah 6.8. As you know, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? to act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. You want to boil your life's purpose down? There it is. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. In in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus also talks about being salt and light. And what does he say there? He says, let your light shine. This is Matthew 15, sorry, 5 verse 16. He says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and what? Can you finish it? 
and glorify your Father in heaven. So when you go, you and I go out and we're salt and light, it's not that it's to bring glory to ourselves. Yeah, they're going to see our good deeds and they might thank us for what we've done or whatever, but ultimately it's what? To bring glory to our Father in heaven. Friend, that's how we live the life. Just being ordinary people who love Jesus, who know Jesus, who walk with Jesus, who find every opportunity to share Jesus in word and in deed. That's how we live the life. And each of us have been called to glorify God when we reflect back his glory, his love to others. And through our own commitment to Jesus, our obedience to his way, we live the life that he has called us to. I'm going to invite the worship team to come and we're going to close by singing a chorus that I think is fairly new to us. I was looking at Tim. Christ be magnified, right? And that's fairly new. Um, powerful words, beautiful words, meaningful words that really are an expression of our desire that God would be glorified in our lives. And it goes, the chorus is, Oh, Christ be magnified. Let his praise arise. Christ be magnified in me. Oh, Christ be magnified from the altar of my life. Okay, a sacrifice that we're making. Christ be magnified in me. That's our heart's prayer this morning. I'm going to invite you to to stand. And, you know, back in the day, we sang a chorus too, a simple little chorus. It wasn't as were, you know, as well written, I think, as what we're about to sing. But it's just, in my life, Lord, be glorified. Be glorified. In my life, Lord, be glorified today. And the chorus would change. It would be, you know, in our church, Lord, be glorified. Be glorified in our church, Lord, be glorified today. I hope that's your prayer today. And when you leave here today, tomorrow morning when you wake up, <clears throat> you just sing this little chorus. In my life, Lord, be glorified. Christ, be magnified in me. Let's sing.